Hello again listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me your host Freddie Cocker. Each pod I check in with a very special guest. We have Renata about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health we will discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who I've known for quite a long time. We first met whilst working together at a children's summer camp to earn a little bit of extra money to fund our university lifestyles, and we have stayed friends ever since. He's the second teacher and public sector hero I've had on the pod after Matt Burton from Educating Yorkshire, and this is an all-round top lad. So I'm delighted to welcome Nikhil Patel onto the Just Checking In pod. Nikhil is a secondary school English teacher and head of year. He's just moved back to the UK for the time being from Doha in Qatar, where he's been working as a teacher at a school there. Here's how our conversation went. Nick, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. We've been trying to get this sorted for a while and we're finally chatting. How are you, bro? And how are you coping with a sort of lockdown and general situation we're in at the moment, mate? Yeah, man, it's good to speak to you. It's good to speak to you. You know what? Um, it's, uh, well, I mean, I'm good at the moment, you know, same old, same old, just cracking on. Obviously, stuck in the UK because of uh, COVID, so um, that's something for sure. But uh, yeah, no, nah, man, uh, I'm good. Mm. I'm good. How are you keeping, mate? Yeah, man, I'm good. I would say it's definitely ups and downs and there's probably ups and downs every day rather than uh, every every week. But yeah, certainly, certainly um, in, a, in a better place than perhaps... I might have been a couple months ago when the when the lockdown first started. So yeah, definitely, um, definitely on the mend, I should say. We've um we've got that admin out of the way. Shall we crack on and get started? Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start the pod, Nick, by talking about your teaching journey. So just tell the listeners why you wanted to get into teaching, what sparked that desire, as it's it's not something that everyone wants to do or actually can do successfully. You know what, when it came to teaching, it was always something that I kind of had a plan to do at some point in my career. Um, When I did my undergraduate degree, I did it in uh, psychology, actually. Um, So my initial plan was to kind of go down the clinical clinical psychology route, uh, to do a master's Mm. and then do a doctorate and then kind of go into practice. But um, I found that when I was on my master's, my master's was called adolescent mental health. Uh, by the way, um, I just I just found that it wasn't necessarily for me. I wouldn't. I would love to be able to like give you the reasons why, but it, I found it. I found it really quite um, emotionally strenuous. I think that you need to be incredibly resilient. And while I am mm-hmm. quite a resilient person, um, I think that it, it it's a lot for a person to take on. You need to be a very specific type of person. So I kind of uh, regrouped almost once I had finished my master's and um, mm. I ended up working in a pupil referral unit for a while, which was essentially, that was my route into teaching. You know, I had a really good relationship with the students and with the staff and then a bunch of people kind of towards the end of the academic year started saying, you know, you should start teaching, you know, you'd be good at this, blah, blah, blah. And I, I suppose, you know, when it's, when it's people that you, and you know, the people that work at this pupil referral unit, people that I respect 
massively because you know working at people referral unit just in case for the people uh who are listening don't know what that is um it's a school uh which is significantly smaller than your mainstream school and you get sent there if you've been permanently kind of kicked out of your mainstream school mm. so the people that work there are under significant kind of uh, stresses and strains on a day-to-day basis because of the what can be quite challenging kids behaviors exactly exactly man um so when it was those people telling me you should do this it kind of gave me the kick i needed i suppose in that moment to be like okay you know what this is something that i enjoy i always knew that i kind of wanted to do it what at a time than the present essentially and that's kind of how i ended up uh teaching mm. And in case the listeners don't know, um, you know, you, I would, it would be fair to say that you probably took the the non-traditional route to, to sort of becoming a teacher. I guess the traditional route is normally, you know, getting a PGC and then, um, and then sort of going into teach first or sort of becoming a teaching assistant, having that sort of non-traditional route. Do you think that, you think that actually strengthened your resilience and, and gave you an added layer of experience coming into the job that perhaps your colleagues might, might not have? Massively, yeah. I think it was a very much so. When I started at the People Referral Unit, um, the only experience I had working with children up to then was barracudas, right? Um, mm. That's obviously that's how we met. Yeah, that we met, yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the types of behaviours you get at barracudas, and then the types of behaviours at uh, the People Referral Unit are like worlds apart, proper um, alternate ends of the spectrum. So. Mm. Um, I definitely would say it made me more resilient in terms of working with behavior. And obviously um, that kind of worked in my favor as well, because when I ended up moving over to teach in Qatar, then I picked up a pastoral head of year role. So, you know, all mm. of those, these little kind of little things, building up the skills progressively as you go on, the starting at that people referral unit and being around super challenging behavior and kind of paid off in mm. the long run massively. And starting out as a young teacher is obviously one of the most, you know, terrifying things that you can probably do. How did you start off in, in, in developing your teaching style and developing that rapport with students? You know, what would you say your, you know, the things that you learned quite quickly and the things that you wanted to sort of establish yourself as doing? Because we, we both know, we, went, we both went to quite difficult schools. And, you yeah. know, if you're in a class where a teacher showed any form of vulnerability, some of those kids would have would take no prisoners and show no mercy, basically. Um. I think that, you know, establishing authority is quite difficult, especially when you're a young person, because essentially the, the, the kids that you're teaching, once I started, when I was 25, I was nine years older than them. So they're looking at you like you kind of almost don't know what you're doing or you're not supposed to be there. It just doesn't seem very, uh, very natural. I also learned very quickly that kids can sense bullshit very, very, very quickly about any very kind quickly. of effort so i mean in a lot of ways it forced me to have to be prepared um from the get-go but i have i have this one moment um which occurred in the first teaching placement that i did actually um and it immediately immediately settled me into the role and it happened to be a kid who i was working with in the pupil referral unit who had made his way back into mainstream school so the guy who my mentor was he had a year 10 class and this young man was part of I walked in the class and saw him and he saw me and it was like this moment of it was it, it just felt like a very real moment I felt very very comfortable in that setting because firstly there was someone that I knew there automatically and already had a relationship with 
So, for example, if things weren't going right, I can always pick on the person to help me out. Um, mm. If you are like a student who goes to a pupil or is sent to a pupil referral unit because you've been uh, taken out of mainstream schooling, the likelihood then of you going back into mainstream school um, after being at a pupil referral unit is tiny. The way that I liken it is to is to prison, right? So you go to prison once, and then the likelihood of you kind of falling out of those negative behaviours that landed you there in the first place is unlikely because you're surrounded by people who also engage in similar or even different means of kind of these negative negative behaviours. So to see him back in mainstream school, his head on, ready to kind of crack on, made me feel so comfortable. This was the first day uh, of my teaching placement. So sometime around what, October 2016, something like that and it made me feel super super comfortable there was a kind of degree of familiarity there that that made me comfortable and almost from that point onwards um, I felt like I was in the right place you know I felt very very Mm. at home with teaching Mm. and when you were finally given your own class what was that initial feeling like? You know, was it massive anxiety? Did it take a while to sink in? Was there a bit of shock? You know, just tell me a bit about that moment. And then when you walked into that room for the first time with a with a group of expectant teenagers. It's, you know, it's incredibly overwhelming. I have um, a, <laughs> a Snapchat. And you know, when you save it to your camera, it comes up in your memories later. So, uh, I remember, I remember you posted it, mate, and it was like your, it was like your, um, like first day on the job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I remember I was sitting um, in my garden just before I recorded that snap, right? And I was looking into the sky thinking, I'm going to be responsible for 100 kids' education tomorrow. Like, this is no small thing. This is a very, very big deal. Um, I I think I took kind of some comfort in, in knowing that. I, when it comes down to it, I know my, I, you know, you know your stuff. You wanna, you're, you're there with the best intentions, and that's to, you know, see these kids progress. You don't want to see them end up on the streets or not get the kind of results that they want. So, while it was overwhelming, it was also the sense of, okay, yes, finally I can crack on, I can get to it. This is what I've been waiting for all this time. Now I don't have someone who's watching over me anymore. I can do things the way that I want to do it, and it's actually very, very liberating um, after that kind of initial anxiety. Mm. and obviously every teacher goes through a an absolute myriad of challenges when they first start and 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 a lot of them actually don't survive the end of that first year in teaching for you nick you know what were the challenges you faced how did you overcome them and and what are some of the um wider issues that 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 you faced and 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 teachers face in those first few years and beyond to be honest i think largely um it's the kind of it's it's for me personally, it was the training versus real life. I think that was the the, the biggest kind of issue mm. that I had in, in in your training. And I trained at UCL. Um, the the my 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 tutor at UCL was this guy named John Yandel, who's this incredible incredible guy, super intelligent, and has a very very specific kind of outlook look on education, which I generally tend to think that people who are new into the profession all seem to have. It's this kind of very idealistic view that you're going to be helping these kids progress. You're going to be doing things creatively and you're going to be engaging kids every single lesson. They're going to come away from every single lesson that you have um, feeling inspired. 
And that is not always the case. Sometimes the environment that you're in, the school that you're in, might make that really difficult to do. For example, if I wanted to do a drama lesson, um, uh, the likelihood of being told, you know, you need to stick to exam prep was, was, was super high during my NQT year. It made it really, really difficult to not do the things that you, you kind of want to. The reason that you get into the profession is to inspire, to see people progress. And if you feel like you're doing the same repetitive things over and over again, like prepping year seven for GCSE exams, you feel like you're losing your mind. And sadly, you know, it's the case in a lot of schools and particularly some schools that I've been at myself, you know, you're, there's a very strict exam focus. I teach English. So, you know, I feel like my subject lends itself to progression across the board, right? You know, your language acquisition Mm. helps you in schools in every subject you do. If you don't understand what's being spoken about, there's no way that you can learn it. Um, So being able to do things creatively for me personally was incredibly important. Not having those opportunities to do that or being faced rather with the practical aspect of school, you need to help these kids pass. And that being the kind of priority is really difficult to manoeuvre. And then you generally, or I generally tend to find that I had, uh, you know, disagreements with people as a result. Um, I I think that was my major, major kind of issue. Is, is is training versus real life uh, it, it was it was difficult nowadays i think there's ways you can get around it um obviously because i've because i've taught now um i've done you know my nqt is done my second year of teaching is now done i feel that i have kind of ways around it but there's you know it's there's always kind of issues attached to doing things your own way not standardizing them across the board and uh, that makes things that makes things difficult mm-hmm. Mm. Were there any teachers in those first couple of years, Nick, that you looked to as mentors or, you know, guides when you were sort of making your way as a teacher or maybe even your parents? You know, we have to give a big shout out to your mum, Gita, who is possibly yes, the biggest do. supporter of them. Let's be real. I mean, I've got to give her a big shout out here because she has been such a massive supporter of Ven, and, and I can't thank her for enough for the, for the, you know, the time and, and all the posts she shared and uh, and the work she's done to promote vent. So was was your was your mum an inspiration for you as well when you were sort of when you needed someone to go to go to for advice? You know what? It's really nice actually having someone so close that's in the in the same kind of industry that you're in. Um, being in education is not easy, especially. I mean, I mean, you see it regularly. You know, kids are it feels a lot in in a lot of ways like kids are being undercut and having someone understands that from an inside point of view is really really nice to be able to you know just be able to release that present it get it all out to discuss ways that we can improve things i remember we had a conversation a couple weeks ago about um mom needed to have a consultation with this parent uh, about a student who has autism i believe it was and we literally just sat there for like an hour chopping it up about ways to approach it and it was wicked conversation to have because firstly, this is my mum. Like, this is this is not a professional conversation, but it is. And it's, it's nice that you know we can, you know, I, it's a mother and son conversation, but we're also on this different level now as well. Uh, so yeah, and obviously she loves everything that you do. Mm. She's always going on about um, about your your Thank posts you. and things like that. So um, I think she's gonna be very very excited when this this eventually comes out. 
I hope so, bro. I hope so. Um, in in the last couple of years, you know, you, you've you've been made head of the year, which is which is a massive achievement considering your age. What was that feeling like when you got the job, and how did the opportunity come about? You know, was it a massive confidence boost? Did you feel any imposter syndrome about it? And and what were the additional responsibilities and skills that you had to pick up or improve upon that um, that came with came with that role? Uh, okay, so um, how it came about? First of all, okay, so this. Uh, this was my second year of uh, teaching and just the one that I'm on the verge of completing right now. Um, I moved over to Qatar actually to teach uh, English. But when I landed, we had about 10 days or so before the academic year began. You go in, kind of get feel for the place, start your planning, all that good stuff. And um, there was an internal kind of advert for a head of year position that was available. Um, I think in the moment, I remember them saying it in the assembly and not putting my hand up to ask for an application form until someone else did. And that's exactly what I felt like uh, in regards to this whole imposter syndrome thing. I was like, I'm new here. I'm, I've been teaching for one year. There's absolutely no way on God's earth that I'm going to be given the time of day here. Um, eventually did end up asking for one, wrote a quick statement. Uh, sent it over, interviewed, and it was it was. Uh, I found out by the end of the day, it was weird. It was a strange experience. A strange experience. I think that my kind of rationale for doing it in the first place was to get some experience. Actually, it's um, going down the pastoral route in education is always the route that I kind of saw myself going down. So I was like, oh my god, this is free chance for me to have a interview for a pastoral role. The worst comes to the worst. I'm just gonna pick up some techniques on how I can better answer these questions in the future. Uh, best case scenario is they'll say, good job, thanks, but we're going to consider someone with more experience. So then obviously I got the role and um, immediately kind of uh, felt very overwhelmed, very uncomfortable um, because of this whole, this is, I've done one year of teaching um, my teaching practice isn't even perfect yet. How can I now go into a pastoral role where I've got a management kind of responsibility within the school and do this efficiently or do it as, good, as well as someone who has years and years of experience? But then I kind of just decided to roll with the punches. I don't think there's any... I think it's, I think it's difficult at times to, to, to just take things as they are. Uh, so I... I kind of uh, had a conversation with my line manager at the time and said, you know, listen, if this is going to be the case, if I'm going to have this role, then I want as much training as you can give me. I'll shadow you as much as I physically can. Um, I kind of tried to set myself up uh, in a position where I could not fail, essentially. I went above and beyond to learn as much about the role as I could so that um, I would be okay at it, I guess. Um but it was very much a trial by fire. The types of kids that you get uh, in a Qatari uh, in, in the Qatari school that I worked at, um, totally different to the types of kids that I was working with in the UK. You know, there are significant um, kind of behavioural uh, mm. concerns in the in the Qatari schools that are significant in comparison to the UK. Um, if I have low level mm. disruption in the UK, I say stop talking. I'm gonna call your mom and. The, the conversation is done. There is no more chatter after that. But, you know, in a Qatari school, it's 
my dad will call the ministry and get you fired. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's a definitely, a, you know what, I'll tell you what, I, I had, um, it was the second week, I think I was there, and uh, someone threatened to call their dad uh, and get me fired, actually. And it was for the most um, kind of pointless activity. All they were doing was running in the corridor, and I said, don't run. <laughs> and, that was, and that was and that was it so you know trying to kind of understand these dynamics and uh, the world that you're living in now which is totally different to the one in the uk uh came with significant challenges for sure but um skills you know it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the skills um and how they kind of developed because a lot of the skills i think i picked up for the first time in paris actually um you know the fact that we were always talking to parents for example, at the beginning and end of the day, uh, helped me to be able to figure out what is an appropriate way to tell a parent that their kid is being an asshole. I mean, it's something that we have to do regularly, right? Mm. So I think mm. that's like an example, uh, definitely, um, of, of, of kind of the development of skills. I think that it's largely just being confident in yourself. Though. Make it till you make it is very, very mm. real. Um, uh it's almost it's almost like manifesting essentially you know i will be good at this job i will put in the work and that will get me there and that's kind of the way that i approached it let's talk about the impact that you've had as a teacher just just in your mm-hmm. your early stages now nick you know without revealing details have yep. there been any sort of memorable stories of, of of students you've had an impact on that have perhaps removed a bit of that imposter syndrome and made you feel like you know raw like i've actually i'm actually doing i'm actually making a difference here yeah, um, there's one story off the top of my head that I can think of that was like a real drastic, drastic change. There was a, um, a kid in the school that I was working, uh, that I've been working at in Qatar um, over the past year. Uh, and he's a year seven, uh, a year seven student. So it's obviously his first year in the secondary. Um, for the first half of the entire academic year, so that's end of August to Christmas holidays, he didn't attend a single class Um he was incredibly disruptive, used to run off the school grounds on a regular basis. Uh, so we ended up having kind of like a quite a substantial series of meetings with his mother, a bunch of other kind of authorities. Um, and I suggested that we have a teaching assistant with him. Now, um, teaching assistants in Qatar are not like a thing. Uh, so what happens is, that the family would be required to employ someone and then that person will come into the school. So it's not based off of the school itself. It's a totally separate entity. So we spoke to mum about that anyway. Um, had uh, this young man with a uh, TA for the first day and he wouldn't take to her at all. He was incredibly rude, um, a little bit violent actually, and it was really, really difficult. She wasn't happy about it at all, obviously, uh, as you can imagine. Um, but then it was weird because after a couple of days and this lady being there with him uh, consistently, he kind of realized, you know, this is, you know, I need to I need to be doing what I'm doing. And actually, it turns out that he had um, SEN kind of meet uh, mm. and they weren't being addressed and having this TA with him. Uh, helped us to figure out what those SEN needs were. Now, this was really kind of a big deal because after this, uh, from kind of January onwards, he was in class every single lesson, working without fail, to the point now actually that he doesn't need a TA anymore. 
um, with the last two or three weeks of school prior to COVID kind of all uh, blowing up. He was working totally independently, cracking on by himself. And it was really, really nice to see, you know, that drastic, that drastic change in, in what felt like two or three week period. Um, hopefully will make a massive, massive meaningful difference for this young man. Mm. Generally, um, I don't like to go for the drastic change, um, the, the, the big change on a, in, in a small amount of time. You know, I had this guy who I used to live with at uni, right? And he used to say this thing that used to drive me crazy all the time. He used to say people were creatures of habit. And it used to annoy me because he was just being pretentious, right? But it's, it's true, you know, the drastic change is so impressive to people because um, it's, it's, it's massive, it's in your face. You're so used to doing something and you understand the feeling of that, that to see someone so change so drastically is incredibly, incredibly like um, inspiring to see. I think that teachers, for us, I think the, 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 the smaller changes, the daily incremental changes are the, the changes that mean the most. Um, because it mm. kind of uh, inspires this long-term ethic of, for example, working harder or behaving correctly and picking up on the little things that maybe aren't so great and then working on those with the student to fix them on a long-term basis uh, rather than trying to do it snap-happy and quick. You know what I mean? Mm. Mental health is something we we both care passionately about, Nick, and and, and mental health and teaching is is something that you were were really keen to talk about on mm-hmm. the pod. Let's 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 talk about mental health in schools first. So, do you think the conversation is changing around supporting students' mental health back before you know when we were in school and and creating school environments where kids can can talk about it to teachers and and open up and and obviously as a teacher as well, Nick, res, you know, respecting the boundaries between student and teacher is something that you, you you must it must get drilled into you you know how do you as a teacher and as a person i guess support your students with their mental health if, if they do come to you with a problem or, or tell you if they're struggling and and how do you sort of signpost them to resources or, or make sure that 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 issue is dealt with appropriately um i think that, uh, from like a kind of a holistic view i don't think that enough is obviously kind of being done in schools and i don't think that um the school's fault i say um, obviously, we know we've gone under years of austerity. There's not loads of resources just readily available for schools, and obviously that means that the students are undercut um, as a as a result of that. That makes it really, really difficult to see meaningful kind of support within schools um, at the moment. I definitely think it's gotten better from when we were at school. I know that um, I you know what, I wouldn't even be able to tell you about mental health chat that happened at school because it just didn't, it wasn't a thing. It didn't exist, um, did it? Exactly, yeah, no. So the fact that there's even a conversation now definitely is important. It means it means a lot. There's a lot of people who are suffering and, you know, um, especially during your teen years or your, your childhood years, it's important to, you know, have the ability to express yourself and get those feelings out. Um, and more importantly, to get help should you need it. I think that for me as a teacher, I... There's that saying, right? It's be the person that you needed whenever you were however old or whatever. And that's the, the role that I try to take. Um, I'm, I'm not their friend by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm not someone who's callous and cold. I, I, I don't tend to, tend to change my personality too much when I'm teaching. So um, if someone feels a need to come and speak to me or if 
someone would like to speak to me about, you know, something along the lines of their mental health, then it's, I think I tried to make it very clear earlier on that the environment that I create and that the classroom, the students in my class create is a safe one. It's something that we can discuss these things because ultimately it's obviously better to get it out than to keep, uh, to keep things that are troubling you on your chest. Than it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not good for your long-term kind of, uh, for you long-term. I think that it's, it's difficult in a lot of mm. ways though. Um, like you said, boundaries between being a teacher and then obviously kind of being able to help people, uh, help young people on their personal, on a very personal kind of emotional level uh, is difficult because you tend to find yourself being pulled in uh, emotionally. Uh, as teachers, that's part of the job. For me, a teacher is not just someone who stands at the front of the class and delivers an hour of chat about Shakespeare and then keeps it moving, you know? That's not that's not what we do. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm there as, you know, a parent when your parent's not around. I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm an older sibling just because of my age, I guess. Um, I'm someone who has life experience that you might not have. I'm also someone who you can make a joke at if you need to. Um, when things get tough, then you should come to me. If things are good, come to me, talk about it. That's the role of the teachers all encompassing. It's not just this person who stands there and delivers a PowerPoint for 50 minutes to an hour and then keeps it moving, you know? So I think that in regards to the role itself, it kind of lends itself to being able to speak about these types of things because you take on that role of a caregiver almost. Um, it is difficult, though, trying not to step the line. Uh, mm. If there's ever kind of a, a time where you think the line is being overcrossed, and that can that can make things really, really difficult. Um, mm. So my personal kind of personal way that I, I deal with it is make sure that, you know, if someone does say something to me, then, you know, you, you kind of jot it down, make a note of whatever they've said uh, and refer it on to whoever your safeguarding person is. That's the That's the kind of best route to take and then um, update them or get updates as you see fit. Um, I know that, mm. for example, myself as a teacher, if I know a student has a safeguarding issue, it's going to be on my head. Like it's definitely going to be on my head even after I've referred it on. So, you know, make sure that you feel comfortable with whatever you're doing. Um, if you don't want to know about further stuff, then obviously then that's totally fine. But if you feel like you have the capacity to understand and help someone through it, then by all means, you definitely should. Mm. I think you know looking back at, at, on my school days if I had a teacher like you Nick I think I would have probably been in a, in a lot better places uh, when I was going through school for sure mate you're far too kind <laughs> <laughs> um you you spoke off we spoke off air Nick about the, the the topics you wanted to talk about and two that you you talked about were, were, were knife crime and social media in particular you know what yeah. can you tell the listeners about about these issues from your experience and, and how they've related to your your I guess your your experience as a teacher Man, okay, so I did my I did my NQT and actually my PGCE year, my training year, um, in Newham. And uh, I mean, I'm sure that uh, some people will have some kind of idea, but Newham is is kind of uh, or has a capacity at least to be super super dangerous. Um, lots of students that I've worked with uh, have been involved in gangs or have been involved in knife crime. I remember when I was at the pupil referral unit, which was also in Newham actually. Um, there was, so you remember when, uh, loads of people, oh, I say loads of people, when there was like a really, really, um, 
big issue with people using acid mm. to like mm. um, attack others, right? You remember this? Mm. Acid attacks, yeah, I remember there was a spike. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like a couple of years ago, something like that. And I remember hearing uh, this story when I first got to the pupil referral unit of um, this kid who used to carry around one of those really small bottles of um, Robinson squash and he filled it up with this acid and sprayed it onto the floor of the playground and the, uh, the concrete started smoking and I remember thinking what have I gotten myself into I've seen um, some of my students before uh, carry knives that are bigger than probably my arm uh, and they just keep them and the trousers you know it's it's it's, it's really really quite um quite worrying that this is the kind of route that young people are taking now um in regards to violence. i remember right you talk rubbish to someone on msn 10 years ago and i'll just come outside your school punch you in the face a few times and you go home and live to see another day but sadly you know and horrifyingly at the moment um it's just so extreme and you've got to mm-hmm. wonder why it's why it's happening. There is no blanket answer that you could give. But mm. God, it's terrifying to even think about kind of being in that environment. And it's 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 sad because probably quite a lot of a lot of young people um I wouldn't say engaged specifically in those types of activities, but you know, for example, being a part of a gang. It's just it's it's really common um among certain types of people, uh certain ages of people. And it's it's super worrying, you know. We feel like in a lot of ways, as an educator, you're letting you're letting um your, your students down because you want the best for them. And then to see them in that kind of environment makes you think you failed. It's really, really mm. difficult. And also then you know, it's the idea that you have X amount of hours with them per day and everything outside of that, right? Uh, when they step out of the school, anything could happen and there's absolutely no control that you have over that. All the good work that you could get done in school can just be undone in the drop of a hat. Um, mm. And that, and, and sadly, it's a, it's, a, it's a very real reality for a lot of, a lot of people nowadays. Mm. Sad. Just sad. before we... Um... Just just before we move on to, to Doha and, and the sort of build up mm. to that to that move, Nick, um, on social media, obviously I, I say a lot on this pod that that social media is a tool. It can be used positively and negatively. I always joke that I was lucky to be only be bullied um on Facebook on social media, you know, <laughs> that that yeah. that whole environment of social media now, you know, the explosion of it, TikTok, Twitter, mm. Instagram, yeah. um and, and so much more. Have you how have you seen it? manifest itself in in kids because we you know me and you both know adults can't navigate social media well adults yeah. engage in social perfectionism culture and one-upmanship and fomo mm-hmm. and all this horrid, horrendous stuff to make other people look bad and make them them themselves um feel more in, more secure when they're actually massively insecure people you know yeah what what on earth has it had has it had an effect on on kids because if we if, if we can't do it how do we expect them to well, this is the thing. I don't think we should expect them to do it. I think it's incredibly difficult to navigate social media. It's, it's, it's. I mean, I, I have you on pretty much every single social media account that I have, right? Um, mm. I don't post on socials like that, not, not regularly. And I think that that's part of the kind of way that I deal with it is not posting super, super regularly. It's kind of having a, a, a comfortable balance between social media yeah. and not managing it. Exactly, exactly. But I think that when you're kind of when you when all you know is social media, when that's in your face from and you're in that super environment, you just want to post all the time, don't you? 
Exactly, exactly. You know, you see horrible things happening in school. I mean, all you need to do is go onto the street blogs or I'm just playing and you'll see something happening in a school. Yeah, some of those videos are horrendous, mate. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think, that, you know, for for kids, because they've grown up around it, it's, it's, it's harder to navigate, if anything, because you don't have that necessarily have a sense of a sense of self right so i think we were incredibly lucky to kind of grow up just outside of that kind of big social media boom i got facebook when i was in like year nine ten yeah i think i held off a bit but yeah super, super late in the day exactly yeah um so by by that point don't get me wrong i wasn't this kind of i know exactly who i am but i had enough of a basis of myself to know okay I am X, Y, Z. No one's going to tell me otherwise. I'm not going to log on to my phone one day and see thousands of photoshopped images of people saying that this is how I should look. I never had Mm. Mm. kids nowadays. You log on to Instagram and you see everyone's perfect life. Negating the fact that on a daily basis, they could be sitting at home and crying. You don't know the the ins and outs of all of these stories that happen on social media and consequently, you know, mm. it's almost like things are just fabricated. So I don't expect kids to be able to manoeuvre it. I don't. I don't think that it's a realistic expectation. Their children, if they must learn trial by error in their day-to-day life and everything else they do, then I don't see why social media should be any different. It's just that I think that there should be some kind of onus on, you know, these companies to try and protect people in some way, shape or particularly if you're of a certain age um but again the way to enforce that is is difficult you know i completely agree mate um we could probably do another podcast on that but but for yeah. now let's um let's move on to um the move to doha itself now so you moved halfway across the world to a new country a new city where you knew absolutely no one as far as comfort zones go i can't really think of a bigger step out of it just just t- take me through the journey of it you know why you wanted to do it how the opportunity came about was it was it a tough decision to make you know talk to me about the day that you moved out because you're obviously moving out of your parents house again but now instead of uni it's to a, a whole different country you know the first few weeks and months um and also kind of reflect on the on the Nikhil that's that's you know briefly returned to the UK now is it someone completely different to the one who left and and just tell me a bit about that journey itself man you know I've always been I've always been the type of person I think in, in my eyes or at least as long as I can remember I've always been the type of person who is not necessarily um comfortable with just staying in one place so for example when I went and did my undergrad I moved the north of England, so quite far in terms of things as as far as moving away from home, and then obviously this has come again. I feel quite comfortable with it. Strangely, I like the idea of of, of going somewhere and being totally alien and learning everything yourself in that in that experience. I like the idea of that. So it wasn't like a it wasn't um something that I was like nervous about per se. Obviously, it's the idea that you're going to go somewhere and you're not going to have friends, you're going to have family, no backup to fall on, which is the comfort of being at home. And that that was that was a difficult bit. It's trying to kind of negotiate uh, negotiate the almost the relationships that you have and how to maintain them over over such a distance. I was what two hour time difference or a three hour time difference away um, when I was in Doha, so three hours ahead of the UK um, at the worst time. And that made it super difficult to uh, to be in contact with, you know, my friends back home. Um, it was weird. It was uh, even even mum and dad actually. Um, I would 
be ready to go to bed at 10 o'clock um, over their time, but that's, you know, seven over here and they're just chilling in the middle of the day. But um, that's the only time we could speak because that's when everyone is, you know, free, that small half an hour slot. That was, like, really difficult. I think that um, I missed having my own people. Don't get me wrong, I went there and made friends and that was relatively easy, but... Okay, so, like, the, the friend group I have at the moment, I've known I've known them for... what? Well, okay, so the, the, the person that I've known the longest in that friend group is... 23, 22, 23 years, something like that. And then obviously the most recent one is even 10 years uh, that we've known each other. So having not having that group of people around me that I know that I can rely on on a regular basis, um, or even just to be able to step out with, you know, just let's go grab a drink, let's go play some footy, let's go do something, uh, come to my house, play PlayStation. And not to have that was, was difficult and took a lot of getting used to. Um, but obviously you find ways to kind of deal with that. For example, I started going to the gym, which is totally something that I'd never thought I would do. Like I became a gym rat, which is <laughs> wild to me. Um, I found a, a lot of comfort in being able to implement almost like a new routine that took over from the one that I had at home. That helped me to become more comfortable with the position or the place that I was in, basically. I hear that, mate, and and I can only imagine how like the the the, the initial jarring moments must have been to kind of kind of reach your phone and go, oh, you know, you know, yo, mate, do you want to come? Do you want to come chill, or do you want to come? <laughs> yeah. to or do you want to go to the pub? And you're like, shit, I can't now. Yeah, this is a Muslim country, bro. There are no pubs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that as well. There's that as well. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what, that was something. That was uh, that was a trial by fire and a half, man. <laughs> there's, there's no more george trips with me man i was a very sad guy for a month or two um just as a final question nick um before we move on to sort of your your mental health journey you know what yeah. what message or advice would you give to to any teachers who are listening who are perhaps struggling in their first few months or or sort of around your age and, and are trying to navigate the the uh the profession you know what message or advice would you give them from your own experiences um I think that my my kind of my general advice would be is that you can you can do it. It might not seem like it right now, and I know this seems super super cliche, but you can get through it. It's difficult at the best of times. We all know this. I mean, the nature of what we do for a living is difficult. You have to be thinking every single second, managing thirty people at one time. It's not easy. So there's always going to be times where you feel like you're going to break down or you just can't do it. Take a minute grab a breath, even if it need, even if you need to take a week, just don't step, don't give up on yourself because you absolutely have the capability. If you've got through as much as you've got through to this point, trust me when I say that you can make it the rest of the way as well. And also remember what you're doing it for. Yes, you're doing it for yourself because obviously, you know, this is something that I would like to think you care about. But also the reasons that you're doing it is to see young people succeed. And if, you know, the work that you do makes that happen, or contribute to that in some way, shape, or form, then you should consider yourself a success, even if um, it's one student. You know what? Even if it doesn't happen, you've gone there and you've done everything that you can to ensure that these young people are gaining something from you. I think that that's important in itself. So just stick with it. It's not easy. Nothing in life is. (laughs) 
We've talked about your teaching journey, Nick. Now let's talk about your own mental health journey. So firstly, just talk to me about your early life, your teenage years, university, like you mentioned a bit, and let's go into a bit more detail about that. And and whether looking back, you know, were there any early mental health experiences? You know, who's the Nick we meet here? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think that I've changed quite a lot over the over the years, just generally. I think when I was uh, when I was younger, I was very um, very quiet reserved not um not very opinionated probably this is the best way to put it probably the way you survived um, in school to be fair though <laughs> yeah you're not wrong mate you're not wrong at all um and kind of progressively as the years the years went on i've, I've, I've become more uh more defiant i think it's, it's weird how you think that kind of like you know as in your childhood years that you're this kind of defiant person and then as you grow older you you mature a little bit and uh it, it becomes less of your personality and somehow i've kind of gone the opposite opposite way as someone who is kind of very much could follow the rules um don't step any don't step out of place type of thing to, to now um not being the case in the slightest. I, 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 you know what it is. I can't. I can't stand for 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 things that I I don't um I don't think are morally right or ethically right. And I tend mm. to find that in in not only in my profession in in education, but just in life. But there's so many of those issues that I'm like, oh my god, man! I've got to talk about talk about explain this now because I'm losing my mind about this, and it's regular. You know, it's it's weird because, um, like I said, when I was younger, I was this quiet, like, uh, fly type. Now, um, <laughs> that's just not the case at all. I think that when I was when I was younger, I would definitely argue that there was um, some some underlying thing there. Would I be able to call it anything per se? I don't think that I would, but um, I would say that there was definitely an issue with anxiety as I was younger. Um, mm. and it's kind of, it's kind of become more manageable as I get older. Um, but it's, yeah, no, it's definitely not like, a as much of an issue for me now as it was, mm. say 10, 15 years ago. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that obviously, cause you're a kid and you don't know what's right and you're kind of, you want to please people and you want to do well. So it's the, it's the naivety of being a child, right? It's the idea that, you know, mm. you, you you need to be perfect. And I think that a lot of my anxiety kind of came from there. But as you kind of move through life, you see things and you experience a lot of different things. And you realise perfection isn't necessarily always attainable. And you've got to be okay with kind of who you are as a person. And I've slowly, progressively got to that point now, or got getting to that point age 27 i'm sure there's many many years of acceptance to come um but yeah no i think that i think it was definitely really difficult for me to maneuver that as a young person especially you know how we spoke about the the lack of um the lack of mental health um facilities that are available to us or resources available to us when we were kids mm-hmm. um i think that that probably made it a little bit harder as well without um kind of specific diagnosis for me that there might have been some some help that I could have accessed that would have definitely benefit, benefited me in the long run obviously I mean I like to think that we've kind of got there organically some way shape or form but um 
yeah, no, I think it would have it, it would have helped me definitely to have at least an avenue to kind of vent, get my feelings out um, mm. when I was younger because I just didn't feel, ever mm. feel comfortable with doing so. Mm. When we get to sort of sixth form and, and the the build up to university now, Nick, you know, yeah. did you you talked about that anxiety, you know, previously? Did you did you feel that anxiety and pressure to go to university, perhaps from your peer group or or the general environment? We grew up in in northeast London, you know. I definitely feel mm. like there was a lot of pressure of, of it being the sort of be all and end all. You know, you often get you and we and we found out later, you know, when people were applying for postgraduate jobs, it was it was two one university degree. Otherwise, yeah. you, you weren't getting you weren't getting an interview. You know, even getting considered, let alone an interview. Yeah. You know, so many so many other guests have, have stated that they have felt like it was it was the be that university was the be all and end all for them in in their head. Did you feel that way as well, mate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, so for my A levels, I did um, English literature, psychology, and I did art. And I did a year of critical thinking as well, right? Um, and from those subjects, uh, I was like, okay, I the next kind of natural step is university. There was no two ways of me thinking about it. It was, that is what it's supposed to be next. That is what I have to do. So I felt a lot of pressure from myself. I wouldn't say I felt pressure from, let's say, my family. That didn't really happen. They've always been quite supportive, and I've been very, very lucky in that sense. But um, I would definitely say that I felt it from myself. I needed to see some kind of progression that was in line with what was expected. That was really um, telling, looking back on it now. Because if I had the opportunity now, I would not have gone to university when I did. I would have waited it out a couple more years and found something, probably it would have been teaching actually, um, that I wanted to pursue properly and then kind of doing it that way. But I think other reason was because you know the lot the year that i went to university was the year that they scrapped three grand uh tuition fees as well so i was like oh shit i can go to university for nine grand here for the entire time or i can go to university for 27 grand in a few years time rack up all this debt and then you know my future life is going to be a lot harder whereas i can just do it now get it out of the way even if it's not necessarily in something that i will pursue um I definitely felt the pressure. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And, you know, one thing that you wanted to speak about off-air regarding social media was was your own perception of it, um, Nick, and your own experiences. Just tell me a bit why that was and in what sense did it affect you? Is it is it something that's 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 impacted your well-being in the past or is it something that you've, you've, you've felt quite passionately about trying to change maybe the narrative amongst people our age and their usage of it? I've definitely felt impacted with it uh, in the past, um, for sure. I think that there's uh, it's, 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 the, it's being human, right? It's seeing something that maybe you feel like you should work towards or you should have, and seeing someone else have it is is difficult to, to kind of grasp. Um, as uh, I, I don't know, like a, I always wanted to travel, for example, take. So I would follow a bunch of travel pages on Instagram and see these people who are like 18 years old when I am 23, 24, 25, um, going around the world, living incredible, what looks like incredible lives. And I'm trying to understand how that's even possible. You know, for me, someone who's just like a normal person, uh, I mean, I guess, sort of, um, to, to attain, to be able to attain that. And the feelings of jealousy are very, very real. I think it's I think it's something that everyone kind of goes through in some way, shape or form. Uh, you know, it's seeing 
people with uh, an amazing car or, you know, ridiculously good looks. I don't know. But um, it's, it's, it's having those things in front of you at all times. And I can absolutely see how it might make someone kind of feel a little bit inferior because it's obviously something I've experienced myself. I think that changing the narrative is difficult once again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think that it's going to require a lot of work from people uh, who already have a lot on their plate. I think that that is, that is, that is probably the thing. But I think it also requires a level of responsibility within an individual's household as well. Um, mm-hmm. Trying not, per se, to subject the young people in that are around you to certain types of things, it's, it's impossible to regulate. I'm just thinking about this as I'm saying, I'm like, how do you regulate social media? How is that even possible? Is it, is it something that you yeah, would expect exactly. the owners of the, you know, the owners of the company to be like, okay, you know what, if you're under 14, then you can't use it, but you can fake your age on the sign off. So how does, so how do you yep. get past that one? Because what are they going to see when they then, go on to it you know um kids can make tinder accounts a 13 year old with a tinder account mm-hmm. isn't that just the craziest thing you've ever heard um i mean that i mean that that sends shivers down my spine to be honest mate it, there's something needs to be done in order to you know deal with uh, the negative effects of social media mm. Something that you also wanted to talk about off air, Nick, was um, relationships. Now, just tell me a bit about why and what you wanted to tell the listeners about your experiences on that topic. Okay, so I guess the reason that I, I or kind of wanted to speak on it is because, <clears throat> obviously, uh, well, I mean, not obviously, I'm 27 years old now, um, getting on as the years go by. So, uh, you know, as far as romantic relationships goes, um, it's it's something that I've kind of on and off experienced as I've uh, as I've grown older. <clears throat> I didn't necessarily mean relationships in terms of kind of romantic ones, though. I suppose I meant them in in terms of just you know a relationship, a friendship, for example, and the, the kind of necessity, the importance of having that around you. Um, I mentioned earlier on that you know my oldest friend was part of my friendship. Uh, you know, my friendship circle, I've known him 22, 23, 23 years almost. Um, <clears throat> having people around you that have known you for that long, that have seen you change, that understand who you are as a person is totally, totally, um, like there's no, you couldn't put price on it. It's, it's, it's incredibly important. I tend to find that I've been very, very lucky with the people that I've been surrounded with. Like I said, I've known my friendship for a really, really long time. And I've had the uh, ability to kind of <clears throat> grow with them, but to also experience with them. And I think that having that group of people is super, super important. In terms of obviously romantic relationships, it's a it's a little bit of a different, a bit of a different story there entirely. But um, <clears throat> of, I'm seeing someone at the seeing someone at the moment, and uh, you know things are going really, really well. So I think that um, you know <clears throat> when you get to a place in your life where you're happy with, you know, like where you are and stuff like that um, to kind of just make sure that you're embracing the relationships that are around you. Make sure you work on them as well. Really difficult because we're all so busy nowadays to, to, to actively work on the relationships that you that you have. Um, Freddie, how many years have I known you? 
so you have known me, what is it, was it 19 when I met you, mate? And I'm 26 now? So six, yeah, seven, yes. seven years? Yeah, six, seven years. See, that's, and, and, and like, for example, okay, so I've known Freddie seven years, and the last time I saw you was at the Georgia that day, right? I'm pretty sure it was a it was a Barracuda's reunion. Um, if I'm yeah, right, yeah, 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 exactly. So like, this is this is what I mean, right? It's that it's the idea that I've known Freddie now seven years, right? Um, and and still, even though it might not be so regular, it's a friendship that is worth cultivating. You know, it's worth it's worth holding on to. And I think that it's important for people to make sure that you know, in this age where you can drop people with the, uh, the you know, whenever you feel like you can cut someone off. Easily, just don't pick up your phone, block the number, ghost them, whatever. But you know, you're making sure that you, you hold on to things that are important, and your friendship to relationships is is fundamental in that. For sure, mate. And and I should say to the listeners that me and Nick have always had a relationship where um, it doesn't matter how long we've sort of seen each other for. We haven't seen each other for. I can just text Nick and be like, "Yo, what are you saying?" And it'll yeah. just be like, "We haven't. We it's just like we we haven't seen each other like since yesterday." So I think that's always the you know a sign of a great relationship where I cannot speak to you for six months and then just reply to an Instagram story be like, "Yo, G, you good?" Exactly, and it's just, man, it just starts exactly. off. It just starts off again, doesn't it? Um, yeah, just as a final question, Nick, you spoke off air to me about wanting to talk about the balance in finding time in life to enjoy things. You know, what did you mean by that? Um, okay, right. So uh, I have this thing, you know, the idea that um, I work to live as opposed to I live to work. Um, and that's kind of, I suppose, the where I was going with this, finding the balance. Um, it doesn't necessarily refer to balance between work and your personal life. It could refer to any 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 type of balance that you need to have in your life. Uh, being healthy and binging, for example. Um, but in 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 this case, the balance for me would be um, making sure that you kind of have some avenue for release. You know, the stresses and strains of daily life are, are just that you need sometimes some way to get out. Um, I tend to find that uh, the gym was a really good way of doing that for me recently. But when I was, uh, you know, over the years, I've, I've played music, um, for example. So uh, I do uh, play a little bit of piano. Um, I paint a little bit here and there. I've actually got one in the works at the moment. Uh, I plan on getting done in the next couple of weeks. So just finding time to, you know, Put yourself first. The, I think a lot of people are really, really um, concerned with what what uh, what other people think of them, and it's important to have a good basis of understanding of who you are as a person. That allows you to develop this balance. Essentially, I know, for, for example, that I once I leave the the school building, right, teacher Nick turns off. I'm I'm not interested in in uh, in, in work stuff unless it's important after the moment that I step out of the building and that's like a coping mechanism for me right work is super difficult it's stressful it's challenging so the way that I deal with it is to just turn off leave everything that is work at work you have a separate life away from that uh for example if it's you know the idea of staying healthy and binging I know that in (laughs) especially in this country we love a good binge uh, binge drink, for example. So, you know, it's the idea that maybe once in a while you let yourself go. Just putting yourself first. I think it's super important. I don't think a lot of people do it nowadays. I know my mum doesn't do it, right? She's always running around after other people. And I'm like, mum, you know, when are you going to look out for yourself? Um, Self-care, and, and, mate. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's super important, man. Because you know what? You know, these these companies that people work for. I mean, I I don't want to just label everyone across the board, but you know, a lot of these companies that people work for. You know, if anything happens to you, you'll be replaced in a heartbeat. It's it's important that you focus on things outside of that one part of your life and work on them all equally. That way, you know, if anything ever happens, you've always got something else kind of going for you. And on top of that, it gives you space to relax gives you the time to unwind and take yourself out of the situation. A foreign topic of conversation, Nick, and this is what I've absolutely loved. It's one I have with all my special guests, and it's a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? At the moment, um, Good, actually, pr- uh, pretty good. I think it's taken um, a bit of a beating in some ways during uh, during this corona thing, being stuck inside and uh, on lockdown. But uh, I've been trying to find ways to kind of keep me occupied and uh, and kind of on a bit of a more positive um, mental, uh, you know, just being in a positive mental place. So I, th- I generally think that it's okay at the moment. Um, Though definitely at the start of lockdown, actually no, tell a lie. Middle of lockdown, I was like, I'm losing my mind here. I don't know how to deal with just being cooped up inside all the time. And actually, I told uh, a couple of people, I was like, I'm ready to fly back to Qatar at this moment because I can't be here. Like it's too alien for me to be stuck in the UK right now. Uh, luckily, I kind of ceased a little bit over the time, <laughs> over over the weeks. But um, yeah, no, nah. we're in a good place now. Good, man. That's good to hear. Um, you spoke about your experiences with anxiety when you were younger. What age do you think you were looking back when you had maybe your first mental health experience or or maybe when you first realised that these feelings you were having weren't actually physical and, and, and they were actually in your mind? Uh, it was about 12, 12 years old. I remember it clear as day, actually. Um, I was outside of my tutor class and I can't remember, I can't remember why, but I remember just it was. It felt like an anxiety attack. I mean, I can claim that now because I know what, or I know roughly kind of what an anxiety attack entails. But at the time, I just remember just feeling totally like alien, right? Like, uh, have you have you ever had this thing? You know, where you're sitting down for really, really long, and you get up quick, and your head just goes super fuzzy. Yeah, man, I get that. It was like that times ten. Yeah. Do you get do you get that thing? I get this thing when I'm sometimes like it, it happens rarely, but when my mind is going like a mile a minute, I can mm-hmm. sit in bed and I can sit, be completely still, but my mind is doing bits. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Bits. absolutely. It's almost like you're having an out of body experience because your mind is your your thought your thoughts are going like at supersonic speed, but you're sitting there perfectly you're still totally and trying still. to sleep. Yeah. Weird, man. Absolutely. It's it's a super overwhelming feeling as well. And the the worst part, I suppose, is that you don't really ever know how to handle it. Yeah, man, for sure. For sure. For hundred percent. It is it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. Um what what things do you find in life that might trigger your mental health, mate? You know, things people might say, it might be sounds, sensations, um, environments. What can you what can you say about that? Um, I think uh, there's probably a very certain certain environment uh, just largely um quite, quite hostile i remember when i was a little bit younger um having i can like remember my parents arguing about something i always remember 
uh, whenever, even to this day now, whenever they, whenever they have like an argument or whatever, I literally just zone out immediately because I feel that when I start to hear it, I get triggered or start to move towards that that place again. Um, so it's almost like a coping mechanism now that I tune it out entirely. Uh, but yeah, no, that definitely, definitely that. Mm. and what tools and methods do you use in your own life nick to improve your mental health or help you feel better you know which ones have you found that have worked and and which ones haven't you mentioned football being a big positive tool in the run-up to this pod oh man okay well let's start with football for one i mean for some people's teams this has been a particularly impressive season uh just like last last year um sadly coronavirus got in the way to uh mess up my team's league shout but uh, that has massively, massively helped me. <laughs> I can't lie to you. Seeing my team, oh, seeing my team uh, over the past couple of years, uh, basically, you know, the team under Klopp, um, but particularly last season and this season, mate. No, I can, I can enjoy a weekend now. You know how crazy that is. To 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 to, to be happy for a whole weekend and not have to be upset because. Mignolet, let Halloran, come on, man. <laughs> it's a game changer. It's a game changer. No, you know what? Football helps massively. I like, uh, uh, in my psych degree, my undergrad degree, right, we, we spoke about um, uh, what people do when they're in crowds um, mm. and uh, the idea that kind of... Um, for example, it's, it's one of the reasons that racism is so prevalent in football matches is because anyone can shout it right. You don't know where it comes from and you have this like crowd anonymity type of thing. Um, but also, I like the idea of the crowd and everyone being in support of the same thing. You know, you could be uh, next to people who have totally different political views than you, for example, but in this one moment, you're here, you're all supporting the same thing. It's for something that generally just brings you joy because outside of, of sport, I mean, football doesn't have a place in, I mean, it, it, you know, there's no real relevance to it other than I support this team and, and, and you know, I'll go to the matches if I can and I'll watch them on TV. But outside of that, there isn't anything. So the, the idea that, you know, you're all united, um, whether you're in the stadium, whether you're at home, whether you're in a different country, uh, having that, was was nice it was actually one of the ways that um that helped me to get through being in Doha um is talking about the Premier League with my guys you know uh talking about the the season as it was unfolding um because it was universal we don't all support the same teams but we can definitely all talk rubbish about Manchester United it's just very easy you know what I mean yeah man I get you I do get you for sure um how do you support friends in your own social group, Nick, who might have mental health issues themselves or, or might be going through a poor period of mental health? You know, you said how football was a, was a, can be a unifying factor, it can be a divisive factor, but, but yeah. for you, your friendship group, it was quite a unifying factor and helped give you that sort of familiar, familiarity and, and, and keep mm-hmm. you connected. You know, how do you support them? You know what? I think that, um, it's just, it's, it's very much in my nature. So, uh, I don't. I wouldn't say that it's anything that I outright try to do. Um, I think, although, although that being said, you know, it's definitely something that uh, you need to work on. But I try to just make sure that you know I'm I'm in touch with people. I think that's the best way. You know, if you're having a conversation with someone and you feel that they're they're, they're kind of 
not their usual selves, and there's always an opportunity to ask, you know, are you okay? Are you okay is a super, super powerful statement, like question. Um, so, you know, are you happy? What's, you know, what's going on in your life? Just generally caring. This is part of part of who I think that I am as a person. Um, that, that kind of leads me to do that quite naturally. But also, um, I know that there was a friend of a friend of mine, and a couple of us have been worried about him for a while. So you know, every now and again, we'll just take turns to to give him a call to see how he is, um, make sure that he's doing good, because uh, had a really, really kind of uh, difficult stint for a while. Mm. Just trying to make sure that you're there for the people that mm. you know that you care about, that care about you, is is being your shoulder to cry on. Just listening, even is. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is all you need to do there's not sometimes you don't need to solve a situation you just need to be there and i think that mm-hmm. that's initially what i will i i try to you know do is just to be there if there's anything i can do after that then obviously i will but your your heritage is South Asian, Nick, and and I guess mm. you'd probably describe yourself as British Asian or, or British Indian. Um, yeah. What cultural dis- differences have you found, if any, are there when it comes to how the conversation is is tackled in in the South Asian community about mental health? You know, we don't want to generalise, but you know, have you found any differences as opposed to the white experience of mental health, and and are there any taboos, for instance, that I might not have encountered, or or someone uh, listening to the pod might you know could be educated on. Yeah, um, uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, as to be expected, you know, the way that mental health is viewed in, in, in within the, the Indian culture, I guess, is, is, is massively different to uh, the, the kind of westernised uh, view, view of, of it. Um, I think there's this thing, actually. So when you, uh, when you go and pray, there's like um, sometimes people report experiencing uh, like God almost entering their body and taking over their taking them over, right? And this is like uh, it's this kind of incredible belief that you know God is is working through you in that moment. And I never thought of it in terms of you know it being like a mental health thing, but um, it's it's super it's super prevalent. I remember when I was really really young, going to a temple with mum uh, and Krish. Ads not about the temple life. Mum um, used to take us all the time, and uh, they're doing like the ceremony in the middle, and this woman just breaking out into like fits on the floor, and just being in total shock about what's happening. But you know, it's the it's I guess the idea that you know she has this incredible belief that you know that what she feels, her faith is so strong that it takes over her, and that's that's probably the most prevalent way that I can think of mental health kind of existing within the community. Outside of that, though, um, I don't think the conversation is a serious one. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, um, especially with older generations, it's tied to resilience. Um, they, they, under, they, they went under, like, you know, super harsh um, conditions. You know, for example, my grandparents, they moved to uh, East Africa, and then my grandparents moved to the UK. So they, for example, went through very kind of significant uh, changes um, and physical changes, ones that you can see, right, uh, moving from one place to another to another. Um, whereas, you know, the idea that it's obviously mental health and then not 
being specifically uh, viewable, very real quantifiable kind of things that you can see in front of you makes it difficult in a lot of ways uh, for, for I think, that kind of culture to, to really understand it and take it on. But that being said, um, there are some people who, um, you know, some, some people in that Indian culture that are doing really, really great work. I know mum works with this school, the special needs school in uh, India, um, and is actually working on some uh, charity, uh, some charity stuff with them at the moment. Their entire school cohort is all uh, students with special educational needs. Um, so, you know, I think, I think largely in, when you look at the world, kind of the, the, we are moving in the right direction. Is it as immediate as maybe we would like? No, of course not, but that's to be expected. So, you know, these things just happen, but I think that it will, I think in, it will progress and eventually within that kind of subculture that um, it will have more of a, more of a, like, there'll be more acceptance towards mental health issues and uh, understanding as opposed to kind of just playing it off as though it wasn't a thing just because it's not a physical ailment. Mm. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Just as a final question, Nick, and this is the mm. last one before um, we've, we wrap it up. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues? And, and why do you think men have struggled to do that and show that vulnerability until very recently? Uh, it's, the, it's the, you know, the hunter-gatherer thing, isn't it? It's you must be strong, you must be this, you must be that, and you can't show any vulnerability is the societal kind of uh, standpoint, I would say. And that's why people find it difficult even now. Um, I love the fact, obviously, um, men are finding it uh a little bit easier to be able to speak on this. And the only way uh, for it to kind of progress is to um, have more, I mean, in the example that you used, more men speaking about how they feel. I think that, you know, if you hear people that you know, and you know, for me, right, this is crazy because I know that I'm, as soon as this comes out, I'm going to post it on my social, right? And I know that people who I know personally might not know some of this stuff and listen to it. So I, my hope out of that would be, listen, I'm, here trying to kind of maybe learn a little bit more about myself as well as kind of speaking about the things that I know and mm. express my feelings that maybe that someone else can also do the same. I think, you know, that, that exposure to it is super important. That's why, you know, Vent and the Just Checking In podcast is so, so good. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Nick for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope it's been an enjoyable and educational listen for all you vendors tuning in. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We'd really, really appreciate it. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.